Today's Old Testament reading is Isaiah 61 through 14. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around, and see, they all gather together, they come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant, because your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you, the wealth of the nations shall come to you, a multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kadar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. Who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? For the coastlands shall hope for me, the ships of Tarshish first, to bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them, for the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has made you beautiful. Foreigners shall build up your walls and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually. Day and night they shall not be shut that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession, for the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine, to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious." The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Our New Testament reading today is Matthew 2, 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, For so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. 
And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child Mary with his, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Lincoln. That was fantastic, wasn't it? Appreciate that. Well, it is Christmas time. You may have noticed. We've got some events coming up uh, that I just want to remind you of. This evening, it's the third Sunday of the month, and so at 6 o'clock, we have our Fresh Encounter prayer service here in this room. We'd invite you to come back and spend some time this Christmas season in prayer. Pastor Mark, along with Sarah, as well as Pastor Don, along with Cheryl, will be in the prayer room at 5 p.m. this afternoon if you would like to come and have prayer for a particular issue in your life. They'd love to pray with you. Secondly, Christmas Eve, 4 o'clock and 6 o'clock, we have services here in the sanctuary, some of our most special services of the whole calendar year, so we'd invite you to come and be a part of one of those. Also, one of our traditions is over the new year, we read the Bible for 24 hours straight from this pulpit. There are a few slots left for that December 31st to January 1st time period. Some of the good ones, I think, are still left. So there's a poster out in the foyer, and if you'd like to participate in that, sign up today on your way out. And then finally, we have a tradition here at College Park as well that we like to start every year with prayer. So the first full week of the year is going to be our prayer week. And there's a full schedule of those events in your bulletin. We would invite you to look at those and attend as many of those prayer events as you're able to the first week of 2013. And now will you join me in prayer? Lord Jesus, you said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And my simple prayer is that today, through your word, you would make that a reality. Perhaps for the first time in some lives, or in a fresh way for others today. For the glory of your name we pray. Amen. Well, the story of the wise men is one of the most well-known and beloved of the Christmas narratives. And I wonder if I asked you this question, what is the main lesson of that story, what you would say? Now, you're used to the preacher giving you answers. Today, we're going to do something a little different because it's Christmas. So what I'd like you to do is take about 45 seconds and just turn to your neighbor and share your answer to this question. What lessons do you learn from the story of the three wise men. So that would mean you would turn to your neighbor. Um, you can introduce yourself if you don't know them. This would be a great chance to meet somebody and discuss the lessons of the story of the wise men. Well, I wonder if you talked about things like maybe the sovereignty of God in working out his redemptive plan in spite of the machinations of men. Anybody think about that? Uh, Maybe not that word, but you had the idea, I'm sure. 
or, or maybe the wickedness of the human heart and how we resist any authority over us, even to the point of putting to death something that would dare to rule us. Or maybe you talked about the, the beauty of giving gifts and how that's an expression of our love and adoration for someone. And those are all great themes of that story. But the one I want to look at today, because it ties back to Isaiah chapter 60, is the theme of, do you know where these wise men were from? See, they weren't from Judah. They were from the east. They weren't Jews, probably. They were Gentiles. They were foreigners. And what they did is actually predicted in Isaiah chapter 60. They saw a light that had dawned. They were drawn to the light. They came to the light and were transformed by Jesus when they saw him. And that's our story for this morning from Isaiah chapter 60. You see, because the beauty and the danger of Christmas are one and the same. The beauty of Christmas is that there's something in it for us. There is a present under the tree with our name written on it. And this, of course, is what your kids are interested in when they come down the stairs Christmas morning. They look through the packages, and do any of your kids look to see how many gifts are for their sister? I don't think so. No, we we want Christmas to be about us. We want something with our name on it under the tree. And that is the beauty of Christmas, is that Jesus has come to set you and me free from our sin and to give us a glorious eternity and hope forever and ever. But the danger of Christmas is that we would get so caught up in the me and the our that we forget about the them. Of Christmas, And that's why the story of the wise men coming from the east. Because God wants to remind us that the reason he sent Jesus was that every person on the face of the earth might be able to see his light and walk in it. You see, we're a lot like the Jews of Jesus' day who thought that salvation was really primarily mainly for them. And once they got it, they were happy. But he reminds us, no, this that we celebrate today really is for that, for all the nations of the world. Now, our main text this morning is Isaiah chapter 60, but Matthew 2 is a good springboard back into that text. Because the bigger theme around the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh is the expansion of the kingdom to the nations and the peoples of the world. Now, as Lincoln read through chapter 60 for us today, what were your thoughts? Well, I'll tell you what two of my thoughts were when I first read chapter 60. The first one was, what in the world does this chapter mean? And and the second was, why in the world did Pastor Mark assign me to preach this text today? A little early Christmas present from my boss. Well, it is not easy to understand because this is a prophetic passage of Scripture. And prophecy is a notoriously difficult genre for us to interpret correctly. Let me set briefly the context of Isaiah. He wrote in the 8th century B.C. And the first 39 chapters of his book deal primarily with events immediately around his time and just a few decades into the future. Events like the decline and fall of Israel and their being sent away into exile as punishment. 
Chapters 40 to 55 deal with events a little bit farther along, maybe 200 years farther in history. And they describe the return of the nation from exile and God's pouring his blessing out on his people once they had received punishment for their sins. But in the last 11 chapters of Isaiah, we lose historical perspective almost entirely because Isaiah, in a sense, is all over the map and it's hard to figure out what he's talking about at particular points. And this is confusing because we don't know if these things have already been fulfilled or if they are yet to be fulfilled. We don't know if he's talking metaphorically or literally. We don't know specifically what he means in each of the sentences that he describes things with. And yet these are important questions because up to 25% of Scripture is prophetic literature. And so we need to have some handle on how to understand these passages if we're going to understand our Bibles. Well, to help, let me mention a couple things just as background and backdrop. And I hope this isn't too academic. Bear with me because we're setting us up to, to really try to understand Isaiah chapter 60. The first thing is that each prophet spoke within his own historical context just like every generation since has done and is the only way we can do it. Now, imagine, for instance, if I had the ability to look into the 25th century and see what was going to happen there, I could only describe those events in 21st century terms and concepts, couldn't I? And folks that would read that material in the 25th century might say, why in the world did he say things that way? That's not how it is at all. But all I have to use now is what I'm familiar with. And even though they were inspired by the Holy Spirit, the prophets had the terms and concepts available to them in their generation. They spoke from within a historical context. But secondly, how do we understand prophetic foretelling? When I was in seminary, I was given the illustration of a range of mountains. And this is a very helpful way to understand Scripture. Prophecy is like looking at a range of mountains. The prophets, as they looked into the future under the illumination of the Holy Spirit, could see various events that were going to happen. But when you look out at a range of mountains, what don't you know? You can see the peaks, but what you don't know is how much of a gap there is in between them. In Pakistan, there's a place that we can see the ninth tallest mountain in the world, and it stands up bright and tall. And what we don't know is that there's actually 50 miles between us and that mountain. And so as the prophets looked into the future, they saw various events, but they didn't know how they were related to each other chronologically. They just saw them coming down the pike, and that's part of the confusion that we need to unwrap. As well, many of the things the prophets talked about had a double or even a multiple fulfillment. They would start to be fulfilled in one event and further fulfilled in another and maybe not completely fulfilled until a final event happened. And how do we know which is which? Well, that's the challenge of interpreting Scripture and prophetic literature in particular. But there's another framework that might even be more helpful for us, and that is the idea of a painting. Now, when somebody paints, they first sketch out, unless they're really good and can freehand it, but they kind of sketch out what the drawing is going to look like. And in a sense, I think this is what the prophets of the Old Testament did. They could see the general figure of what God was about to accomplish, but they didn't know exactly how and when all of those events would be colored in. So as time progresses and things begin to be fulfilled, the picture that the prophets painted becomes clearer and clearer. And finally, at the end of time, when all of those events will have transpired, we will understand exactly what was in God's mind when he inspired the prophets. 
And so today one of our questions is, which of these events refers to Israel at that time? Which refer to Israel in the future? Or which refer perhaps to the entire people of God? And that's a confusing question. But I want you to see again, Isaiah has seen a picture of what's ahead. Some things are fulfilled in Israel, either his generation or a few hundred years ahead. Other things, I believe, are not fulfilled until the church of Jesus Christ comes and we have a complete understanding of what Isaiah was talking about. So in summary, the symbols and the images simply paint themes for us rather than give us the charts and the graphs and the timetables that we want. And we as Westerners are particularly prone to that. We want to know exactly what's going to happen when. And the scripture isn't clear on many of those issues. But rather here, particularly in Isaiah 60, he's just painting some broad strokes. He's filling in a picture. And here's what he's doing. Here's the summary of the sermon. He is etching a picture of the future glory of the completed people of God. Okay, so if you forget everything else, just remember that. Isaiah is etching a picture of the future glory of the completed people of God, including people from every tongue, tribe, and nation on the face of the earth. Well, with that background, let's get into the text and see what we can make of this painting. And there are three themes, three broad brush strokes that I want to pull out. We're not going to have a chance to look at everything in the text today. The first is that the light dawns chapter 60 of isaiah verse 1 arise shine for your light has come and the glory of the lord has risen upon you for behold darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples but the lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you you see we don't understand or appreciate light until we've been in darkness And that's something that we in 21st century America rarely experience because of our technological advances. Have you ever really experienced darkness? Maybe the only time you do that is if you go camping. And I remember a time back in junior high school growing up in Pakistan, we went camping in the foothills of the Himalaya Mountains and we were excited to get out there and, you know, then it started to get dark and we quick cooked supper and then we laid out our sleeping bags and You know, what happened pretty soon, it got very dark very quickly. And with that, it got very cold as well. And as we tried to snuggle into our sleeping bags, we began to hear noises in the trees. There were flying squirrels around. And there were who knows what other types of animals in the forest. And I spent one of the longest nights of my life on the ground in that forest. Because it was dark, I couldn't see anything And I was worried. When the light came up that morning of the dawn, I was never so glad to see the light. Do you know what the darkness feels like? Verse 2 says, For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. This is similar to what Mark talked about two weeks ago from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And he defined in chapter 8 what that darkness was for them. And it was speaking contemptuously against their king and their God. In Isaiah 9, the darkness came from rejecting the word of God. I think our darkness here in Isaiah 60 is a little bit different. It's a darkness of never knowing about God in the first place. You see what verse 2 says, For behold, darkness shall cover the earth. It's all over the earth. And thick 
darkness, the peoples, all the people groups, the nations of the earth are covered in thick darkness. Last month, I had the privilege of being in India with a vision trip from College Park Church. And within the space of a few days, we got to see this darkness up close and personal. We were in a Buddhist monastery and we saw monks chanting scriptures and we saw their flags that they had risen, put up on ropes around the complex, waving in the wind, hoping that the wind would carry their request to the God that lived somewhere out there. We got to go to the Ganges River and see thousands of Hindus bathing in that dirty water, trying to cleanse themselves from their sins. We got to go to a Hindu temple and see people lie down prostrate on the marble before an image of metal and give gifts of flowers and rice. We got to be in a mosque where we saw people worship a God who knows nothing of grace or of the wonder of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it struck me again, our world is in deep darkness. You could go to South America where the church has transformed the gospel of grace into a a religion of works and people are trying to get into heaven by their own bootstraps and there is thick darkness. Or you could go through Europe and much of our own country where the gods of materialism and pleasure rule on the throne and you will find darkness all over the face of the earth. You will find in our cities injustice and poverty and broken families and we see darkness in our own nation. In fact... We saw it too close on Friday, didn't we? When there is no fear of God in people's eyes, how deep is the darkness? And we grieve with those families. But Isaiah saw that day and he said, darkness has covered the face of the earth from north to south, from east to west. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. Solomon says, they do not know what makes them stumble. But here's the good news. The light has come. That's what he's telling us in these first three verses. Into the darkness, God has done something. When does the light come? When God acts. When God speaks. When God works. When there was darkness over the face of the earth in Genesis chapter 1, all it took was God speaking. And there was light. When there was darkness for the Israelites in their exile, all it took was God to speak the word to Cyrus to deliver them and let them go back. And suddenly their words, their worlds were flooded again with light. But what is the greatest coming of God to date in our world? It was at Christmas time when Jesus, the light of the world, came down into the world, fulfilling, I believe, these first two verses of Isaiah chapter 60. Your light has come. And John tells us in chapter 1, verse 9, that the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. For in him was life, and the life was the light of man. My friends, the prophet wants us to see that no matter how dark and deep the darkness is, the light has dawned, and we know it because of Christmas. Praise his name. But note, it's just the dawn. The full splendor of daylight is still ahead, even for us. Well, secondly, the light dawns and then it transforms. 
Now, who is the prophet addressing in this chapter? It's a very important question, and it's hard to figure out. He says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, in verse 1. And that's actually a feminine pronoun in Hebrew, and we don't really know what that means until we get to verse 14, when he says that he's talking about Zion, or Jerusalem, as the city of God. And I think in the first instance, Isaiah is speaking to the Jewish nation, represented by their capital, by the city of Jerusalem. And some of these things in this prophecy are fulfilled in Israel. For instance, in verse 10, where he says, Foreigners shall build up your walls. I think that's a prophecy that was fulfilled when Cyrus issued an edict allowing the people to return and build the walls of Jerusalem. And even provided materials for them to do that. And yet there are other things in this passage that are very confusing because it doesn't look like they've been fulfilled yet. Verse 6, a multitude of camels shall cover you. I don't believe that's happened in Israel. Verse 11, your gates shall be open continually. Day and night they shall not be shut. I don't think that's ever happened yet. How about verse 12? For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. Have all the nations that are fighting against Israel perished and, be, and been laid waste? No, that hasn't happened yet either. And, and so here we're right in the middle of our problem of interpreting this chapter. How do we take these predictions? Well, at the risk of oversimplifying it, let me say this. I think there are two ways that we can handle this text. You can either take those things that have not yet been fulfilled and assign them to a future period of time known as the millennium, or you can take these things to spiritually, figuratively refer to the people of God in this day and age, the church. And either way you take those, I'll be fine with that. I won't argue with you, but since I'm standing up here, I have to make a choice because <laughs> I'm supposed to tell you what this chapter means. Well, scholars way better than me have debated this topic in books and for centuries. I have a full manuscript that's available online on the church website with some more material on this, and I don't want to get into the details right now, but, but let me simply say this. I'm going to, from here on out, take the unfulfilled parts of Isaiah chapter 60 as referring not to the millennium and being fulfilled with the Jewish race, although I believe that there will be a millennium yet to come. But I view most of these prophecies that are unfulfilled in the Jewish nation in Isaiah's time as referring to the church, the people of God. And so what I'm seeing this text doing is, as I said earlier, Isaiah is sketching a picture of the glorification and the completion of the people of God that's happening throughout history. And that certainly includes Jews who acknowledge their Messiah. So with that background, what are the themes of what God is doing with his church, his people. And I think there are three. First of all, he is showing them mercy. Look at verse 10. For in my wrath, halfway through the verse, in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. The Israelites, like sheep, had gone astray. They had all turned to their own way, just like we have. And God warned them, and they didn't, Stop disobeying. And so finally God had to 
punish them in his anger. God got angry, and the verse is very, the word is very strong in Hebrew. He blew up at them because they continued to disobey him. And yet he reminds us that even though in his wrath he struck them in discipline, in my favor I have had mercy on you. And this is how the light, my friends, transforms us, is that God gives us not what we deserve, but he gives us his mercy and his grace. In my favor, I have had mercy on you. God is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. And then this from the prophet Micah. Who is a God like you, who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. Today we're going to be remembering the mercy of God in Christ in these elements that are before us. And that is what the light does when it comes and it dawns, is it transforms us by showing us mercy. That God took on Himself the punishment that we deserved so that we might walk free. Secondly, beauty. There's some really interesting phrases in here. Look at the end of verse 7. And I will beautify my beautiful house. Verse 9, at the end, because he has made you beautiful. Verse 13, to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. God said, I'm making my footstool beautiful. And what is his footstool? Well, in the Old Testament, it was the temple. Because it's where the transcendent God came down to meet with his people. And where does God like to be? In a beautiful place. God wants to live where there is beauty because He is beauty. And so what He's about as this light shines and transforms is He's about transforming us into His own beauty. And how is that process worked out? Well, it starts with what Christ has done for us on the cross. It says in Ephesians 5 that Christ gave Himself for us. Why? To make her, the church, holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. This is why Jesus died was to make us beautiful by washing away our sins. This process continues with the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Because as we reflect on the Lord's glory, it says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we are transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The Spirit sanctifies us as we think about Christ and makes us beautiful, makes us like our glorious Savior. Then the Spirit empowers us to do good works. And those good works are the fine linen, white and bright, that we, the church, will wear on the day of our wedding to Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 19, verse 8. And finally, we see in Revelation 21 a picture of the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, beautifully dressed as a bride for her husband. And we'll learn more about that in a couple of weeks. God is about the process of beautifying his church. 
So do you see the color and the dimensions being added to the sketch that Isaiah was drawing? We know more about the beautification of the church than he had any idea of. And I trust that you've seen some of that by his grace in your life. That the light has dawned, but it's also transforming you. As you experience his mercy, you become changed. You become like Christ. You become a beautiful person. And together we are being built as a building for God's own dwelling, the scripture says. God wants College Park Church. He wants his universal church to be glorious and full of splendor and beauty. And he is hard at work to make that happen. Yet even that does not exhaust the vision of Isaiah 60. And in a section of the text that we didn't read, there's a time yet to come when things are fundamentally going to change forever. Things that did not happen for Israel, they've not happened for us. There are still some more presents under the tree. We've only seen the first flush of dawn. The full brightness is still ahead. And this is the third thing that happens when the light transforms us, is it gives us hope. It gives us mercy, it gives us beauty, and finally it gives us hope. And let me just mention two things from the last part of the chapter. Verse 17, the second part, I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. Now listen to this, violence shall no more be heard in your land. Devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. My friends, the day is coming when there will be no more school shootings. The day is coming when there will be no more war between nations. When there will be no more riots, no more coups, no more assassinations. That is the hope that we have. That God is going to bring complete shalom to our world in the new heavens and the new earth. Not only will there be no more violence, there will be no more darkness on that day. Verse 19, The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Has this happened yet? Absolutely not. Many of you have mourned in 2012. You've been in darkness. You've understood. You've felt the pangs of the fact that the wages of sin is death and that we live in a fallen world. And yet the light has come and it has dawned and it is giving us hope of a future when there will be no more violence, no more destruction, no more darkness and no more mourning. Not a single tear is going to be shed when we get into that eternal state. And that's because God sent the light. So the light dawns, the light transforms, and finally the light attracts. Did you notice how often the nations are mentioned in this text of Scripture? And it's really, I think, an unfolding of the promise in Genesis 12, verse 3, that is repeated throughout Scripture, that God said, I've blessed Abraham so that he might be a blessing to all the nations of the world. That was the original, this is for that idea. And it's unfolded even more in this text here. And here's what we see about the nations. First of all, they will join the church from all over the world. Look at verse 3. A nation shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Verse 4. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your son shall come from afar and your daughter shall be carried on the hip. Verse 9, for the coastland shall hope for me. 
the ships of Tarshish first to bring your children from afar. The nations come from all over the world. They're coming from the south, from Midian, from the east, from Ephah, from the north, Kedar, and from the west, Tarshish. And notice that some of these areas of the world are currently the most difficult areas for the gospel today. This is Yemen and Saudi Arabia that it's talking about. That people from these nations are going to come into the church and bring the ruler of the church glory. It's the beginning of the fulfillment of what John saw in Revelation chapter 7. When he looked into heaven and saw a great multitude that no one could count. Standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. People from every nation, tongue, tribe and people. This ingathering is happening now. And it's going to continue to happen as people from all over the world are drawn. They're going to come quickly like a cloud, verse 8. Like doves to their windows. They're hurrying because they have a lively faith. They can't wait to get into the church. And they will be drawn, notice this, by the beauty of the church. Verse 9. The reason that the coastland shall hope for me and the ships of Tarshish is because the Holy One of Israel has made you beautiful. This beautification of the church is for that. It's for the nations to see something that they've never seen before and to be drawn to it and to flock to Jesus Christ and become a part of His church. Secondly, they will bring their wealth to the church. Like this is probably the most dominant theme of this whole chapter. Verse 5b, the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. They shall bring gold and frankincense. 9, 11, 13. They're bringing stuff as they come into the church. Does this mean their money? Yes, I believe it does. Because that's part of the resources that God has entrusted the church with. In fact, Calvin reminds us that no one can belong to God without dedicating and devoting to Him all that He has. That's a lesson that we would do well to learn from the nations. They don't come empty-handed to the worship of the Lamb. They come bringing their gold and frankincense and all of the wealth that they possess. And they give it to the church. But much more than that, they bring their culture, their music, their dress their food, their language, their experiences, their perspective. And it's only when all of this mixture comes together that the church is finally fulfilled in all of its beauty. This is the beauty of the bride of Christ. It is the most diverse collection of people in all of the world and nothing is even a close second. And this is how God is gaining glory. How in the world else could people from all these nations come together and agree and live peaceably? It's only as they're transformed by the light of Jesus and filled with His Spirit and become a beautiful, diverse church that displays the glory of His splendor. And it brings us joy, verse 5, to see this happen. Then you shall see and be radiant and your heart shall thrill and exult. Would you like to see a little bit of that? Let me show you a little bit of that today. These are pictures from a few of our partnerships around the world. And it's just a quick survey of the wealth of the nations and all that they have being brought to the Savior. Some of these are folks that have come to faith in Christ through our partnerships. Others are one that have heard the gospel. In West Africa, Togo, in Liberia, in China, remote parts of the Guizhou province in China, people hearing the gospel of Christ. 
This is a picture from last month in India. These women and these men three years ago were all Hindus and God has brought them to faith in Jesus Christ and they're worshiping together now the name of Jesus. They're bringing the wealth of the nations into the city of God. Men from the Caspian region that have heard the gospel and been baptized into the body of Christ. Men and women from East Africa being trained for the gospel ministry. Folks in Cambodia for the first time hearing of the grace of Jesus Christ and worshiping him together along with the token white guy. Isn't that beautiful? That's a picture of the glory of God and children hearing the message and responding in faith. My friends, this is happening and we see it and are radiant. We praise God. We exult in what he is doing as he brings the nations into the light of his son. And finally, they will serve the church. Verse 10, foreigners shall build up your walls and their king shall minister to you. Verse 12, for the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. Now, you might have misunderstood that. You might have taken that to mean that they're going to come and serve us because we're the church. No, we are not the church. You and I are part of those nations that are coming to the church, the universal church of Jesus Christ. So you and I are part of the fulfillment of this picture. In fact, even this morning, we fulfilled Isaiah 60 because we brought our wealth into the church that God might use it to make a greater light throughout the Brookside area. And everything that's given to the church today goes directly to our Christmas offering and our ministries in our city of Indianapolis. We're a part, but only a part, of this glorious picture that God is doing. Others come and serve. And that's why, to me, it's so exciting to see our partnerships, to see people in the developing world now taking the initiative in mission activity, such that now there are more missionaries being sent out from the global south than from the global north. We're being outpaced now by our brothers and sisters in Latin America, Asia, and Africa. And that is a beautiful thing. Fulfilling Isaiah 60, that they're going to come and serve the king of kings by serving his people. They are building the walls of the spiritual kingdom of God together with us. Well, we can't conclude this without looking at perhaps my favorite phrase in the entire chapter, and that's the very last one, the end of verse 22. I am the Lord in its time. I will hasten it. What, what does that mean? The NIV says, I am the Lord in its time. I will do it swiftly. You may be saying today that, you know, it's well and good to talk about all this wonderful stuff that God's doing in such grand and poetic terms, but right now I am in deep darkness and I want something to happen. When is the light going to dawn for me? Well, this verse tells us exactly when the light will dawn for you. You ready? Here's the answer. When it's time. When it's time. God said in its time, in her time, when it has been fulfilled, I will do it quickly. God is not going to delay. God is not one day late or is he ever one day early. Think of the people of God in the Old Testament who were waiting for hundreds of years for their Messiah to come. They were waiting in deep darkness and they were crying out, how long, O Lord? Do you remember what Paul says in Galatians? In the fullness of time, God sent His Son. On the exact day 
that was the right time. And so God is saying that to us today as well. When will he shine light in your darkness? When it's time. And when the time has come, nothing's going to stop him and he's going to do it swiftly. The predicted glory will burst all at once in your life and you will exult with joy. But who knows what the right time is? For us, the right time is always right now. But we're not the Lord. He said, I am Yahweh. I know the right time. Leave that with me. Well, today we've looked at a story, a painting of what God is doing to transform and complete his people, the church of God. And to me, this is a beautiful, freeing text because it's not about what we have to do. It's about what God has determined, what he is about and what he is accomplishing. It is his story, not ours. And yet here's the beauty for us, that each one of us has a part to play in that story. And to some extent, we get to choose what that part is. And so let me just remind you of three things as we close. Remember, the light dawns. And I would ask you, has the light dawned in your life? If you are still living in the darkness of your self-seeking and self-ruling life, there is life ahead for you if you would just enter. The Son of Righteousness has risen with healing in His wings. He wants to touch and heal you right now where you hurt. But you need to come to Him and let Him do that. The walls of this city are called salvation. And its gates are open 24-7. The gates are still open for you to come to Jesus and find life. I'd invite you to come into the city today if you haven't already. There will be some folks at the end of the service afterward that would love to talk to you and usher you into the city of God and all of His beauty. But secondly, remember the light transforms. If you are already a citizen of that city, God is at work in you to beautify you. To make you glorious like his son. So that you can be prepared to be a fit bride for that gorgeous one when he comes back. And so, if you're dallying around in the gutter, get out of the gutter. Because it's not befitting of the bride of Christ. Rise up to a life of peace and righteousness. The life that he came to give. And finally, remember that the light attracts. God's goal in shining his light on your life was not just so that you could soak up the rays like you're sitting in a tanning booth. The goal is that you then would become radiant with his glory and that that radiance would reach into your neighborhood, into our city, and to the darkest corners of the world. Let your light shine brightly. Because when the light comes... It changes everything. It is full of glory. And his name is Jesus. And God's word to us this morning is arise, shine, for your light has come. Praise his name. And now, Father, we pray that you would fill us with your spirit, that we might be those beautiful people among whom you want to live and through whom You want to draw others to yourself. We ask this for the display of your splendor and the glory of your name. In your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Arise, shine, for your light 
has come. Praise his name.